nurses and hypochondriacs, the podcast that brings nurse experts, patients, and hypochondriacs together to discuss hot topics in healthcare. And here is your host, Ercilia Pompilio. Welcome back to a new episode of Nurses and Hypochondriacs. We went ahead and took a little bit of a summer break and we're back for fall and it's Halloween season. It's pumpkin spice everything season. And I'm super excited about this episode that we're going to be doing today because we're going to be talking about one of my favorite subjects, hypnotherapy. Back in 2009, hypnotherapy changed my life. I was doing a lot of sprint triathlons. And one day I found myself in the middle of the ocean swimming and I was in fight, flight and freeze and I couldn't understand why. So I then was walking in Los Feliz, California, and I saw this sign that said, are you stuck? Come in for sports hypnosis. And I did. And it started to change my life. I started to see the world very differently. And I also became very much more self-aware. It was like wearing a new pair of glasses. My guest today is Dr. Ran Anbar, and he is board certified both in pediatric pulmonology and general pediatrics. And he offers hypnosis and counseling services at the Centerpoint Medicine in La Jolla, California, and also in Syracuse, New York. He's the past president, fellow, and approved consultant of the American Society of Clinical Hypnosis. Dr. Anbar is a leader in clinical hypnosis and his experience with hypnosis since 1998 have allowed him to successfully treat over 7,000 children. We're also going to be talking about his book, Changing Children's Lives with Hypnosis, A Journey to the Center, which is an amazing book that he published in 2021. This is an awesome episode, and if you're a nurse, you'll get continuing education units. You won't want to miss this episode. Stay tuned. This episode was brought to you by Rogue Nurse Media and the Well-Written Nurse, empowering nurses and patients to tell their stories. And welcome to Nurses and Hypochondriacs, Dr. Ran Anbar. Hello, thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, like I said before we started recording, I'm so excited to have you on. It's like I, I found your book by accident, like I said, because I was studying consciousness. I was watching a YouTube video on consciousness. Um, they mentioned a book. I went to Amazon and that's what I usually do. Whenever someone mentions a book, I go and look for it. And then for some reason, your book popped up and I was like, what? Someone's doing child hypnosis? No way. And so <laughs> I was like, I got to talk to this guy. And like I said, about a year ago, I was talking to my medical director here at the um, pediatric practice that I do work at sometimes in Palm Springs, California. And I was, I was asking, I was like, Hey, I would love to do hypnosis. He's like, Hey, that sounds like a great idea. Let's keep the conversation going. And, um, yeah, and it kind of fell through. I got busy, he got busy, and um, but now it's great to bring up this conversation in such a good time, too. So tell us about yourself, Dr. Ambar. How did you get into 
doing the hypnosis from being a pulmonologist, a pulmonologist, a pediatric pulmonologist, right? I'll answer your question, but I have a question for you first. <laughs> okay. Do you really think it was an accident you found my book, or do you think you were guided to it? My subconscious mind guided me to you. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> we were meant to meet. So, uh, yeah, I'm a pediatric pulmonologist, and I was uh, trained at the University of Chicago School of Medicine. I did my residency and fellowship at Harvard Medical School, so I have a pretty uh, good pedigree. And I was practicing pediatric pulmonology back in 1997, so that's 25 years ago now, when a, a patient was referred to me. His name was Paul, and he was very allergic to milk products. Twice he almost died from eating a milk product, including a week before I met him when he required an intubation. They had to put a breathing tube into him to help him breathe, and um, his lung collapsed wow. as a result. And they had to put a tube in his chest to help the lung re-expand. And three days later, when the lung when the lung seemed healed, they took the tube out, but the lung collapsed again, and he was sent to see me because I was a pulmonologist. And I met him. Uh, I was immediately connected with him. I later started recognizing that connecting with your patients is a key part of good health care. Um, and I told him, we'll take the chest tube out, and if it collapses again, we'll have to um, do surgery to prevent the lung from, from collapsing yet again. He didn't like that. We took the chest tube out. He was fine. We sent him home. A week later, his mother calls me. She says, you know, he has terrible pain at the chest tube site and he can't walk. Oh, and wow. I'm afraid, she said, that he might have had brain damage as a result of the resuscitation a week ago because that's what happened. He was seven years old. He needed six months of rehabilitation after the first time he almost died. I said, is he having trouble breathing? Thinking maybe his lung collapsed again. Nope, no trouble breathing. Well, why are you calling me? I don't know. Well, to call. I said, well, I don't know much about pain. I know even less about people who can't walk, but can, I can certainly arrange to admit you to the hospital. So the next day he was, I admitted him to the neurologist service. I came by to, to make social rounds to say hello. I came into his room. He was sitting at his bedside. He was literally shaking and he looked very upset. And I said, Paul, you look very upset. He said, yes, I am. It's always important to acknowledge how your patient feels. What's the matter? I don't know what's wrong with me. Uh, they've had, I've had a brain, a brain scan. I've had a nerve conduction study where they put electrodes in your muscles and run electricity through them. I'm sick and tired of being sick. I want to go home. So I sat in front of him. I took hold of his hands and I said, uh, calm down. You'll, you'll get better. Um, you'll be able to walk again soon. And I noticed as I was talking to me, calm down. And then I said, how would you like to walk now? And he said, yes. So I supported him. He walked, stood up walked up and down the hall with me, walked back to his bedside. I turned to the nurse practitioner I was working with and said, what just happened here? Was this faith healing? I laid on hands and he healed. She didn't know. I didn't know. The neurologist just should have known, didn't know. And I remember thinking to myself, if I could figure out what happened here in bodily, it'd be worth something. You're right. I didn't know what it was. And I followed it away as a curiosity. A year later, the same patient is now seeing me in pulmonary clinic because he has asthma. And he says to me, lately, when I've been smelling cheeseburgers, I've been developing asthma attacks. I thought it was a rather strange sounding symptom. But, you know, he's very allergic to milk products, maybe milk molecules wafting through there, triggering his allergies, which, by the way, can't happen. I learned later. So I said, do you think this could be anything like last year when you couldn't walk? No, I, this is my asthma. I know my asthma. I said, OK, but do me a favor. 
Imagine eating a cheeseburger, which is something you could never do in real life. So he closes his eyes and starts imagining within seconds he's having trouble breathing. Uh, his nose is opening up as he's breathing. He looks like he's in real bad trouble breathing. I'm thinking, oh, no, he's going to stop breathing. He's going to have I said, stop it. So he did. I said, you're kidding me. No, no, I couldn't breathe. That was my asthma. I said, whoa, you thought you were into that? Now, I knew very little about hypnosis. I, I had a colleague who had studied it for 100 hours, but was too afraid to use it. She told me a little bit about it. So I thought, hmm, maybe there's something hypnotic going on here. So I said, put out your hand and imagine a glass plate covering it. Now, tell me if you feel me touching it. I touched his palm. Nope, can't feel that. Wow. Took out my pocket knife. That's the one the airlines confiscate later. Opened up the corks and jabbed his hand. Nope, can't feel that. Whoa, this must be hypnosis. I don't know if it's you or me, but it's worth finding out about. And immediately I'm thinking, if you can think your way into illness, can you think your way out? Brilliant. So I wanted to send him to a psychologist who would teach him hypnosis. And then I said, Paul, go, go to the psychologist and come back and teach me because I'm interested. In college, um, I was a double major in psychology and biology. So I've also always liked psychology. And Paul says, I'm not crazy. I don't want to go to the psychologist. I want to work with you. I said, that's very nice, Paul, but I don't know anything about it. I don't care, teenager. Right. So I went to my friend, uh, Dr. David Keith, who is a psychiatrist at upstate New York where I was practicing. And I, he had supervised me while I was doing some counseling with patients with cystic fibrosis, another lung disease. And so he knew I, I knew what I was doing. And he said, you, you could do this. I'll back you up. If you have any issues, let me know. So with that backup, I started reading about hypnosis and I started practicing with Paul. And that's when I learned how to use hypnosis. He was my first teacher for the first year. We just, he and I worked together like every couple of weeks. I love that. And, um, and I love how you outlined the book too. It's very much like the hero's journey. Are you familiar with the hero's journey, the writing style, Joseph Campbell? No, I know of it, but I don't, I'm not very familiar. No. Your book is written just like that. And it's written how epic heroic hero's journey movies are written like star Wars, Forrest Gump, you know, how, you are the hero and all of a sudden these mentors start coming into your life and teaching you things. And every time you get a new one, you tend to level up. You know, I think that's a really interesting concept. Um, I do learn from each one of my patients. This is true. Um, I also uh, have come to the realization that I'm guided. And um, in my book, I talk about the very first patient with cystic fibrosis whom I met when I was 16 and he was 12 years old, when I was volunteering at the Children's Hospital of Stanford. And because we became friends and I, he, I, were, I we stayed friends for seven years until he passed away, unfortunately, at the age of 19, which is what CF used to do in, in the 80s. Um, and uh, because of that, I went into medicine and into pediatric pulmonology. And then 25 years ago, I went with Paul, because of our interactions, I learned about hypnosis and I went into this whole new phase of my career. I'm now practicing in, in La Jolla, California. And for the last eight years, that's what I do full-time, pediatric hypnosis and counseling. So I've shifted away from doing both pulmonary and, uh, and hypnosis. So yeah, so I think we meet guides in our life. Maybe it's like the mentors you talk about. Um, and then we meet lots of small guides, of course. Every patient teaches me things. 
Right. And I I could totally relate to that. I mean, my whole life is like that. I have been studying um, video game theory, which is uh, we're living in a simulated reality. And I'm reading a book by, uh, I forget his, Riz, and I forget his last name, but it's called um, Simulation Theory right? And he was a video game creator. And it's it's like we're in a video game sometimes because we have these non-player characters that will give us information on stuff. And, and it, like I said, it kind of helps us level up or kind of helps us do something, uh, win a prize or something to where we need to be, you know? I mean, when you talk about guided, are you feeling that it's your patients that are guiding you or it's your subconscious? It's your higher self, your higher power, God? Who do you think is guiding you? So I believe I'm I'm guided by the universe, God, whatever term you want it, by a force outside of of our life. Um, You're talking about simulation therapy, you might, my concept that I've developed from working with my patients, and my patients have told me these stories. This is it's not from my, my faith background. I'm Jewish, and they don't talk much about uh, in the afterlife or the spirit That's world. Right. And yeah. Christianity doesn't. Yeah, Christianity talks about you know going to heaven if you don't sin, stuff like that. But um, my philosophy is more similar to I guess Hinduism or Jewish mysticism because uh, Jewish mystics talk a little bit like I do. So. My concept is that, so we're here in this world, uh, we, we have our conscious selves, and then we have our subconscious selves, uh, which overlaps with the soul. Um, the soul talks to us through the subconscious. I'm not quite sure if it's different from the subconscious, it may not be. And then the subconscious can have access to information beyond this world. Yes, yes. And, um, and so there, uh, you can talk about spirits or demons or angels or God. Um, and I've also come to learn that, um, or come to, to understand that, you know, we have a limited brain. And when we're exposed to things beyond this world, uh, we see them the way our brains can interpret it. So I don't think we see things or sense things the way they are. In fact, even things in the real world, quote unquote, we don't see as they are. So for example, when you see a, when you perceive a color, um, the color is not in the real world. The color is the way your brain interprets a light wave coming at a certain frequency. So red has a longer frequency than blue, but there is no red or blue out there. The red and blue is just in our brain. Um, another example is if I put on, if you put on glasses with mirrors in them that would turn the world upside down and you just kept wearing them, after a couple of days, the world would turn right side up again because the brain would compensate for it. So again, we don't see the real world the way it is. We see the real world in the way that our brain is programmed to help us cope and navigate as best we can through this world. And when you go to the, the unquote unquote other world or whatever else is out there. The again, other side. Other side. What we perceive is what our brain can perceive and I don't believe it's what's there. So people say, like, you've heard of near-death experiences. Yes. And the scoffers will say, well, it can't be real because some people see Jesus, some people see Moses, some people see that. Um, and what I think happens is people perceive something beyond themselves, and then the brain interprets it as something that they used to know. So if you're Jewish, you'll see Moses, sure. If you're Christian, you'll see Jesus. But 
it's none of those. It's it's something else that we interpret in that way. That's at least my current understanding. Right. My understanding to that is it's based on the person's programming. Like we all have a different um, computer database in a way of what we, where we grew up, uh, what religion we were, what our parents fed us from the time of zero to seven, correct? So our subconscious mind is downloading all that kind of like software in a way, right? And um, into our hard drive. So everybody, like my perception, if I were to go and have a near-death experience, God forbid, um, (laughs) I would probably have a much different experience than you would, you know, although there would be certain similarities, uh, you know. Um, Have you ever watched that movie Contact with uh, Jodie Fisher? I know it's quite a, a... an old movie but she she goes to space and it's almost like she's having a near-death experience right and that's where she sees her father who is kind of like her higher self I don't know this movie just popped into my head I guess I need to speak to it um and, and she had a vision of what heaven or space would look like and it looked like a beach correct I was actually reaching behind me because I have the book contact on my shelf. So I did better than I love it when this happens. (laughs) It's one of my favorite books. Stop it. Oh my God. I love it when this happens. It's great. Not a coincidence. There are no coincidences. No, when you have coincidences like this, you wonder. So if this is planned, if this is planned, then it had to be a plan many years ago because I had. I've been carrying the contact book for 30 years, right? And you just bring it up today. Or, you know, physics predict says that time doesn't exist. Correct. Everything is happening at once, if you would. And so these coincidences happens, we just the confluence of events brought the two of us together to talk about it today. Correct. Correct. Um, yeah, it's either that or we met somewhere in the future and we're like, hey. You know, we got to go back in the past and do this because there's so much craziness going on. I mean, what do you think? We'll get into um, how you came into writing your book. And I'd like to talk more about the subconscious mind. But I kind of want to touch up on just um, how many mental health issues we're having, especially with our teenage patients these days. Um, Now, I've been in practice uh, since about 2005 in pediatrics, where as a pediatric nurse practitioner, where I've seen patients on my own, and I've never seen so many mental health issues. Sure, we're blaming it on COVID. Sure, we're blaming it on not enough vitamin D. Okay, sure, we're blaming it on our iPhones. Sure, I blame it a lot on um, kids can't be kids anymore you know, because they have a lot of helicopter parents, parents are having a tight grip. Kids can't explore their identity anymore. Like I love Eric Erickson, you know, huge um, follower of his because I had an Eric Erickson experience when I was in high school, I shaved my head, changed my name, but I didn't make myself non-binary. I was like, I'm just exploring myself. I took photography classes. Um, made myself get into AP English, um, took acting classes, was in swim team, was was a thespian. I did all these amazing things that I'm putting together now in adulthood. And I really don't think kids can do that anymore because now they're like, oh, I'm non-binary. This is who I am. How do you know that? You have from 11 to about 18 to figure it out. 
why do you have to figure it out now? <laughs> so can you um, talk about just some of these issues going on with anxiety and how I, I sent you that New York Times article on how people are just popping, giving these kids pills, SSRIs, you know? Uh, and I, I just think it's like, wow. So you see a child for five minutes and now you're going to go ahead and give them an SSRI and okay, bye. And that's it. All right. So you ask a very big question. So first of all, uh, yeah, you listed, I agree with most, I think I agree with everything you said about uh, potential stressors for kids these days. Um, I think that the biggest reason for the increased um, mental health problems is, uh, is indeed related to the, to the uh, social media. And it's related in a couple of big ways. One is lack of sleep. Um, kids, teenagers need eight to 10 hours of sleep a night. And only about a fifth of teenagers are getting that today. Um, a third sleep less than seven hours a night. And why are they sleeping less? Because they're on their phones, on their social media. And we know very well that lack of sleep is associated with increased anxiety, depression, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And that's just the mental health stuff. Wait till we get to the physical stuff later on in life. You know, we unleashed an experiment on the human population by unleashing, unleashing iPhones and social media. It's an uncontrolled pop, population. We are just doing it. And 30 years from now, we will know how bad we have injured ourselves. In China, they've outlawed use of social media for kids more than an hour a week. China knows it's bad. In fact, they've released TikTok to the rest of the world. And right. a TikTok article where girls are influenced to have uh, all sorts of weird Tourette's. Tourette's, all sorts of weird things. That's just the tip of the iceberg. But China knows it's bad, so they don't let their citizens see it. But we in the Western world, if you want to be a conspiracy person, you might say it's done on purpose to influence us badly. So, so I think between the lack of sleep and between exposure to a lot of negativity on social media and also the echo chamber of social media. In social media, you're shown over and over again things that you're interested in, quote unquote. Yes. The kid is thinking, am I non-binary? Is going to see so much non-binary stuff on their Thank social media. It's going to become their truth. And kids are very influenceable, as you know. They're trying to figure who, them, who they are. You know, when you're seven or eight, you know, everything is fine. Mom and dad tell you everything. But then you start being aware there's more to the world and you're trying to, you're trying to learn. And the world is very overwhelming. Kids are not protected from the world anymore because of media. Pornography, horrible. Oh, pornography is the worst. Yeah. And, and it, it affects not only make, makes kids guilty, but, you know, the virginity rate has increased among boys. Did you know that? Because of pornography. They don't, they don't go out with girls anymore. They just stay at home and use pornography. And when they get into their 20s, they don't know how to deal with girls because they haven't had any experience. Exactly. Autism. I'm sure autism is increasing because two and three-year-olds are on their tablets rather than interacting in a playground, throwing sand at each other and getting mad and learning how to calm themselves. They don't have that experience. That that's I want to comment on that because you are very right on. Um, so I took a break from practice. So I used to work at Children's Hospital from 2007 to about 2013. I, I took a little bit of a break. I was teaching and then I worked for the pharmaceutical industry. Okay. So 
um, in that break, I went back into practice in 2017. And when I came back, I started seeing very strange things like two-year-olds who wouldn't speak. And when I was practicing here in Palm Springs, uh, my nurse has been here forever, like over 20 years. And he was like, oh, it's just because they speak Spanish. And I go, no, 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 look at this kid, something's wrong. They were having effective dysphagia where, where they could, it was weird. They were like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like they could move their face, but they could not move their mouth. So their expressions were very strange. But then we used to have these iPads in our exam rooms. And I would watch the kid and they could run an iPad like a, a computer engineer. And I was like, something's not right. And I would go, what's going on? Well, they were addicted to the phones. So I started doing research. And just that day, wouldn't you believe it? A research study, the American Academy of Pediatrics had released a research study that this woman in Canada barely was on the cusp of, you know, saying that iPhones are creating brain damage to these kids and, and making them developmentally delayed in speech and giving them this expressive aphasia or, or dis, was it aphasia? Yeah. So, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and so I photocopied a ton of these um, uh, media reports and I was giving them out to my patients. And I told them, I go, no iPhones, no, no media for six weeks on these kids because they use them like pacifiers right you know and at that time i would go to restaurants and people are like you know it's it's a family and the baby's like this with the iphone like literally like i was like what is going on what right. happened to social interaction and i would get a medical assistant because i would started working at other clinics and medical assistants are like hey you seem a little different from everybody else. Can I ask you this question about my child? Because my child's not speaking, but everybody says that's okay. I go, it's not okay. So, and I'll tell you right what it is. And they were, and it was the same symptoms, you know, and I still see, oh my God, speech therapy. You can barely get an appointment anymore because it's oversaturated. It's ridiculous. Right. But it's not just speech development. It's social development. Yes. And we're going to be seeing the product of this in 20 or 30 years when you have 30 and 40 and 50 year old adults who can't function because as you know the developmental milestones you hit in early childhood affects you your entire life we're just starting to see the bad effects it's going to get worse that's the scary part i want to i want to talk about another question you asked earlier which is the, the wish to give a medication for after five minutes this is not just true to mental health this is true of all medical all health care yeah. I am, I'm a physician. I am not proud, you know, I'm not proud of the presence we've had in this country and I'm not proud of the healthcare we have in this country either. Right. Of course, I'm not proud of the education system or the legal system either. So, you know, it's a, I can't dump on just one thing, but in healthcare, um, in part because of the way the system is structured, you're reimbursed for seeing lots of patients and just giving them a pill. Be right. it in medical, or mental health. And the problem with giving a pill is if you're giving the pill for the wrong reason or giving the pill for an incomplete reason, you get patients who don't respond at all or don't respond well, and then they come back and you give them another pill because you're gonna have a stronger pill or whatever, mental health or physical health. I can tell you story after story, as I'm sure you can as well, of people who have been really mishandled by the healthcare system by uh, because 
they just want to give pills. I'll tell you a quick story. This is from my book. Um, this 12-year-old girl came to see me because she was anxious. Right. But she was anxious because every night a ghost came to her and told her to kill herself. Oh, my God. And she had tried to commit suicide twice. And she'd been in a hospital a couple of times. And she was given zombie medicine. I call that antipsychotics. So she was kind of snowed when I met her. And so what did I do? I talked to her. Gosh, what a novel concept. Um, and I asked um, to speak to her ghost. Now, most doctors say, you don't do that. That's not real. What are you doing? Well, I found that when you follow your patients, they take you where they need to go. Right. I've, I've known that too. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So if it's a bizarre story, that's fine. Just go along. So I asked to speak to the ghost. And at first she said the ghost can't come because she only comes at night. But I convinced her to have the ghost come. And I asked through the girl, is it true you want the girl to kill herself? And the ghost said, yes. I said, why? Wow. The ghost said, because she's had a horrible childhood and I want her to relive it in a better way. Okay. I sort of follow that ghost yeah. logic. I got that. And I said to the ghost, well, I'm teaching her how to cope with that horrible childhood uh, by um, teaching her hypnosis techniques and calming techniques. And when she dies of old age, not if, but when, she can relive her childhood as she chooses to. And the ghost said, okay, that works for me. I would like to become her guardian angel. Ah, and okay. I said, I said to go, would that be okay if your ghost became the guardian angel? And she said, yes, as long as I don't have to see her anymore because she spooks me. And I said to the ghost, is it okay if the girl doesn't see you anymore? And the ghost said, yes. I said to the ghost, say goodbye to the ghost. The ghost left, never seen again. She was there every night. And over the next six months, we got her off all the antipsychotics. And she, I discharged her on Prozac or antidepressant. And that was that. And, and she was fine. That story's in the book. Now I'm going to tell you as a special bonus what's not in the book. Yes. When I tell you what's not in the book, you'll understand why. And then we'll talk about why I wrote the book. Yes, yes. So the it's like, remember Paul Harvey? He used to say, now for the rest of the story. <laughs> yeah. So after this session with the ghost, I wanted to tell the girl's mother what had happened because she had tried to commit suicide twice. This was sort of wow. mutual therapy. I wasn't exactly sure what would happen. So with the girl's permission, we went downstairs and told the mother what had happened. And the mother said, what did the ghost look like? And the girl said, oh, she was like a three-year-old girl in a white dress. Huh. And the mother said, oh, that's what I've been seeing around the house some mornings. Wow. I love it. So you can decide what you want to do with that information. Well, I would have said, well, well, yeah, oh, yeah, I, I have a counter story to that because yes. back in 2016, I went to go see Dr. Terry Palmer in London. Okay. And he was on this show. Um, he's now deceased, unfortunately. And I, I found him on YouTube. You know, um, I had some questions for him because um, I was experiencing um, these things and I, I was, I was going to hypnotherapy myself. So he talks, he, he does a lot of spirit release. He wrote a book, his doctoral dissertation on spirit release, release. So, and he is a part of, or was a part of the Society of Cyclical Research in London. London is awesome. Like, <laughs> like let me tell you, has a lot of very cool um, 
psych stuff. Okay. Um, I mean, Florence Nightingale was also, I would do seances um, and, and stuff. It, it's really cool. But anyway, so I um, encountered him in London. He gave me his book. Um, I had him on the show. I, I researched it a lot. And I had friends who would be like, I see this in my home. So I, I started to go and do these spirit releases. And it was very, very interesting. But they would come back to me and said, and say, it's gone. I feel so much better. My life is different, you know? So yes, I've studied hauntings quite a bit. And what I think of, I have different theories. I think of, uh, if you believe in quantum physics, there could be timelines that are overlapping. There could be thought forms. I was listening on TikTok the other day and a woman said that um, someone called her who bought her childhood home and said that they were hearing her voice in there. So even though the woman's alive, her thought form is still in her childhood home. You know, isn't that very interesting? So, and again, you go back to that thing in time, like what is actually going on? You know, is that woman still living in that home? You know, <laughs> meanwhile, other people are living there. Is it a true haunting or are there parallel realities going on? You know? Uh, I mean, it's very, very fascinating to me because I've looked into it and I go, I think there's overlapping timelines that are happening. So it, it's it's um, this moment in time is correlating with this moment in time somehow, you know, uh, and, it, and it's very, very interesting. So it's not really haunting per se. It's not really a ghost living there. It's actually there's other people living there while you're living there, but in another time space and another consciousness. Could be. I mean, it's a theory right. I've really looked into quite a bit. Right. Well, we don't, the point is we don't know. I think rea our extra reality, if you would, is probably more complex than we can imagine. Of course. Yeah. But coming back to the book and the reason I did not put the, and now the rest of the story in the book, is um, my mission at this point in life is to spread the word about hypnosis to people who don't really know much about it. And um, I'm a student of the history of hypnosis. So back in um, the early 19th century, Anton Mesmer uh, used hypnosis, yes. although he called it mesmerism. So we got the word mesmerized from. And he actually treated a lot of people with what he thought was magnetism, uh, especially women with fainting spells. And he would treat them and they'd be cured. Uh, the TikTok example of kids developing Tourette's is because they're hearing about other uh, girls, mostly girls with Tourette's, and they developed the symptoms. So 200 years ago, people developed fainting, hysterical fainting, because every, it was quite common, and Anton Mesmer cured it. So in the middle of the 19th century, uh, before the development of anesthesia, um, uh, I think it was James Esdale, a surgeon, uh, did 300 surgeries with hypnosis as the anal analgesia there was no anesthesia. Mm -hmm. The British Medical Society came to investigate and they couldn't believe that people were sitting there without pain. They said, oh, they're just pretending it doesn't hurt. They couldn't believe it. And then in the mid 19th century, ether was developed and so people stopped using hypnosis for anesthesia. Then in the later part of the 19th century, Dr. James Braid uh, coined the term hypnosis, which means type of sleep. Um, he realized quickly it wasn't sleep, so he wanted to rename it Mono ideaism, single idea, but that name didn't stick. We get stuck with hypnosis. 
Then in the later part of the 19th century, people started saying all these amazing things about hypnosis. So not only for pain control and stuff like that, but that you can contact spirits and tell if you're healthy or sick. And the public um, didn't buy it. Right. <laughs> then hypnosis got a bad reputation and dropped out until uh, Freud picked it up for a bit of time, then he dropped it. So I'm well aware of this history. And I, I'm a student of history, do not want to repeat it. So I, when I wrote the book, yeah. I excluded, I have a lot of weird stories to share. Yeah. But I excluded them from the book because people have a hard enough time understanding hypnosis as using your imagination to heal yourself. Right. Than to say, well, it could be a portal to the other and, side. And I really like that you did that because it reads like a textbook and it is needed. You know what I mean? It's like I I had it at um, the coffee shop the other day and there's a guy that I see there all the time and he's getting um, I forget what kind of degree he's getting, but it has to do with health sciences. And he's all like, you're always he goes, I don't understand you. You're a nurse practitioner, but you're always reading these type of esoteric books like like other. And I go, it's because I've been in practice for 25 years and I love you know, I do Western and I do other stuff too. I do whatever works. I have a big tool bag (laughs) that I pull from, but I experienced hypnosis myself because I was doing sprint triathlons back in 2008. And when, and I've always been a swimmer my whole entire life. I used to swim competitively in high school, but I always had that fight or flight response, especially before a big race, because I love how you were working with teen athletes. And they were having problems with their throats closing up. Okay. So I had something similar when I would do a race, like I would have fight or flight. I'd be like, <gasps> you know, and, and that whole thing. And it, and it, it, it turns into freeze. So it's hard to get out of that. It's hard to shift your focus. So one day that actually happened to me when I was training and the weirdest thing happened, I was in the middle of the ocean and I got stuck. I was in freeze mode. And what I couldn't understand was, I was like, I don't understand what's going on because I know I can move forward, but my body's not going. And I don't know. I, I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense. I can swim, but I'm stuck. So that's when I really started to explore my subconscious mind. And I was walking in those fields one day because I was working at Children's Hospital and I found this sign that says, are you stuck? <laughs> Don't you love it how that happens? And it yep. says, come in for sports hypnotherapy. And I was like, oh, hey. And I just went right in, booked a, a, an appointment. And I think I was seeing the therapist for six years on and off. Like I would go in whenever I felt I needed a tune-up, whenever I felt like, hey, this and this is happening in my world. Let's explore. And we would go in and we, it's kind of like an onion. So, you know, I would just uncover more and more stuff that was going on in my subconscious mind. And my world really changed, not only my world, but my family's world changed, you know, and my friends as well. And then I started to study it. And, And with storytelling, I started to really look at people's stories and helping them shift, you know, out of their subconscious programming. Let's talk about the subconscious mind a little bit, you know, because I I remember in the book, you said, good angel, bad angel, and how you speak to that with kids and how you help 
empower them as well, which I love with the positive words, words because these days there's so much negativity music. You know, I, I've seen kids listening to very, very dark music and turn dark, you know, um, I've had patients come in going, I don't know what's wrong with my kid. They're, they're always so, and it's a small kid. It's like three or four year old. They're, they're misbehaving. They're having weird behaviors. And so the parents have like, um, what, uh, horror movie t-shirts on and they're all tatted up. They're all, and I'm just like, okay. So, so one day I'm just talking to the little girl. We're having this really good conversation. I believe she was about three or four. And, and so she was on, um, the exam table. And then she looks down and she goes, Pennywise is down there. And I go, Pennywise, how do you know about Pennywise? And she goes, oh, and she started telling me the whole story of Pennywise. And, 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 and I asked the mom, I go, how does she know about Pennywise? She goes, oh, we watch horror movies all the time. People, <laughs> so people have so little common sense these days. Um, I, I just, I wanna pick up on, you said when you were swimming, you were stuck. I think that's a nice metaphor. I think this is true for medical symptoms or for other life events. People yes. move forward and get stuck and hypnosis and the subconscious can help it unstuck. The other thing I want to mention uh, is that, and I'm going to mention my book name in case somebody wants to know, Changing Children's Lives with Hypnosis. So um, we, where we talk a lot about the subconscious is that the therapy does not have to be long. I mean, some people come in for tune-ups and stuff over many years, but the average patient who has a medical condition for whom the uh, symptoms have been made worse by their psychology. So let's say you have asthma and you get anxious because you can't breathe. Then when you learn hypnosis, you can calm yourself and your asthma is much milder. Well, let's say you have uh, irritable bowel syndrome and you have stomach aches all the time. You do hypnosis and within three weeks, you're much, much better. And so the, the therapy can be quite brief, three, four sessions and you're done. Right for the basic stuff. And that's for like two thirds of the medical patients I've encountered. It's three or four visits, not a long time. Um, however, if you want to get the full benefit of hypnosis, including a lot of subconscious work, of course, that could be a lifetime of work. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. The subconscious. So um, I have learned from, again, my patients that the subconscious is a source of great wisdom and uh, knowledge. Uh, sometimes the patient can access things outside of themselves. That's pretty clear to me. I have one Christian boy who sees Hebrew that he does not understand, but he can point to the letters on a Google uh, letter chart of Hebrew letters. I, I know what it's saying because I'm a native Hebrew speaker as an example. So where does that come from? Um, you know, Carl Jung talked about uh, the collective unconscious. Again, yeah. trying Stuff Huge on, Carl Jung follower. Yeah. Again, and it's about the other side, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I rely on the subconscious as my co-therapist. So once I teach the young person how to interact with the subconscious, which typically will be a third visit, I will ask the subconscious, what do you think we need to work on? I'll ask the kid, I'll ask the subconscious. Sometimes they disagree. I ultimately let the kid choose, but they use oftentimes go along with what their subconscious says. Um, so, you know, you mentioned earlier before we came on the air that you've, you've dated men who act And like I'm gonna, I'm, I was gonna, I was gonna share, I was gonna share, oh, you, we're, we're so should, on, I love should, it. We're, <laughs> well, well, let me answer the question before you end. Yes, I'm gonna share a story about that, yes. Right. 
But I'll, let me tell you my spin on it, then you can share your story. Yeah. <laughs> if I even heard the story. Or yeah. maybe I did hear it. Another... Maybe you did hear it in the future, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the we can have what we can maybe term ego state. You can, Part of us yes. can get stuck. Um, and I can share a story. After your story, I'll share a story about an ego state that got stuck. And the way to help those kids is to talk to that stuck young version of yourself and let it move forward and then things resolve. So I'm gonna think that in the story you're about to share, the gentleman who's stuck had an unresolved issue um, in teenage years. Yes. And the way to help him if if you're the right person to help him is to help that version of him get unstuck. But yes. The story yes. Now. I've had, it's not only one man, it's many, it's many. That's the thing. And, and that's why I either think they're attracted to me or I think that I am just the healer. I don't know, you know, um, I, I, I've come to, um, I'm the advocate, you know, I could tell you some other ghost stories for another time that I think you'll find very, very fascinating. Um, but yeah, so they kind of have robotic speech, first of all, you know, and, and that is the ego correct? Uh, where it's um, the subconscious programming. And so it just boots in. So they're not speaking from their consciousness, conscious self, right? And so, um, and, and, I, and I find with texting, that's even worse. Like I think texting for dating is terrible, you know, because they're, they're coming from another part of their brain, right? It's kind of like a robotic programming. It, it's not really the conscious, you know? Um, so, um, some of them, like when I first started to really pay attention to this, it was a guy and he was being very lewd. Like I had, we had spent a a beautiful day in Griffith park, just laying on the grass and just enjoying each other's company. And it was very platonic and it was very nice. So after he sends me a text, like, I can't even believe we didn't have sex. And it was just like, and then just the things he was saying, it was like a 14 year old kid. And I could pinpoint the age. I go, this is a 14 year old kid. All of a sudden, what, what, like, where did he come from? You know, out of nowhere. And I was like, boom. And I got this attack and I was like, whoa, what was that and I started to look into it and then I started to see this more and more in these in these uh, men that I date but they're a specific type I think a lot of them were addicted to porn you know um that I found um and because I started to explore this with them one of my friends calls me uh Dr. Masters of Sex you know because <laughs> he goes what are you doing what I go it's very interesting it's almost like I'm studying them and I'm on to something you know which I am writing a conscious dating book um to put all this information in there because I don't think I see people share these stories on TikTok and I go you don't know what's going on there's a lot of very strange subconscious programs and I don't know why do you think it's because of the social media the porn the phones the I don't remember dating being this difficult you know, before uh, the whole internet era. Well, I talked to you earlier. I must have come to the future and come back about how pornography is affecting the teen yes. oh, it's boys in particular. Yeah. They don't know how to interact sexually with a human being. Right. They go out to, to get sexual satisfaction from watching a pornographic video, which doesn't even represent real sex. And they just don't know. They haven't had the experience. And so, so I think that's what you're getting. You're getting these 
man man childs who yeah progressed beyond being teenagers right right and for some reason and it is a pain it is either an unrequited love that they had like at 15 you know because i i just asked one like i again he he was kind of my test subject i was like let's go to dinner i'll pay and we went to a nice restaurant because i just wanted to hear his story like what was going i know he's very troubled he's drinking a lot and there's just a lot there. So I just kind of wanted, I, I felt in my heart space, my higher self was like, you need to help him some way. And it was more of a storytelling talking thing. The funny thing was his higher self told me how to help him. It was almost like fancy dinners don't work for this man. And he told me, he goes, you know, handwritten letters are really special. They do something to the subconscious. And I was like, that is bizarre. So I guess I have to send him a handwritten letter, you know, or do you find, cause this is interesting that happens to me. I'll be talking to someone and all of a sudden their voice shifts and changes and they tell me something, uh, you know, they, and then I go to it and then I'll come back to them and I'll ask them about it. And they have no recollection. They told yeah. me. This. Yeah. Well, what's your, so that's the, that's, that's, subconscious, that's, that's just subconscious speaking. That's subconscious right. speaking for sure. And one of the characteristics is that people often don't remember what happens in a subconscious level. I, I have a patient I work with who I'm very attuned to. We re- I call it resonance. I think our brainwave yeah. line, I think I know our heart rate align. Yeah. So when we work together, invariably, however long we work together, we are done. What? It's done. It's over because we've been in trance. Me, yes. I've been in trance as well. Yes. Right? So, I think that happened up. to me. I go into trance sometimes with these yeah. guys. And I was like, why am I in trance with them? What is going on? Why are, and it's, I, and it, and it's either because I need to, I, I don't know what it is. Sometimes it's. Well, I think you're a healer. I suspect. Yeah. And, and there's. Oh, I, 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 I have. I have. Done by 10 people and they all say the same thing. <laughs> since I moved to California eight years ago, I've been sent um, two dozen, maybe kids who are really special kids they're they're very uh they're old souls they want yeah, to help they the come world to me too yeah they're very bright um they're kind of anxious because they don't know what to do yeah. with all this stuff that's coming at them yeah and i relate really well to all of them me and too. i think they're sent to me to to sort of help them sort it out let me tell you a story we talked about stuck um subconscious so uh, a 29, I recently saw a 29 year old um, in Syracuse. I do video counseling too. I still have my license in New York where I used to work. And when I met him, I said, well, this, must, this appointment was an error because I don't see adults. I work with kids, but my intake person thought you were 19. And he said, well, you know, I don't have to keep the appointment. I said, yeah, I just, I'll work with you. It must be meant to be. So just, yeah. what are you here for? Needle phobia. I said, I know, but needle phobia i deal with a lot of kids with that um so we talk some more and he's not really afraid of need he's not afraid of pain which is what most kids are worried about he'd rather have dental work without any anesthesia than have the needle he's afraid mm-hmm. of needles and he said this started when he was three years old he doesn't remember that but the story is he had a lot of stitches from an injury when he was three i said oh well maybe you don't have a needle phobia per se you have fear of medical procedures then we keep talking. And he says, you know, I was referred to you when I was 10 years old. My pediatrician sent me to you, but my, my family was afraid of hypnosis. I said, oh, you, wow. are one, you are one of my patients. Okay, just 19 years later. Okay, I got you. So 
the next time we met, I taught him how to do hypnosis. And there's a technique in hypnosis called age regression, where you go back in time in your memory and you relive the, a traumatic event in a calm way. And that typically takes care of phobias and, and traumas, I mean, most simple traumas. So we did that. He went back, the subconscious went back to the time he had the stitches and he taught himself to calm himself and he, he calmed down in his imagination and he checked another time later in his imagination later in time when he was still calm. So I said, come on back. And I said, okay, now you couldn't look up a needle on the internet before. So why don't you look it up, see what's changed? He starts typing. He says, I can't do it. I can't even type the word needle. I'm getting flushed and, and wow. having all the reactions. I said, well, that didn't work. That's strange. Maybe you're different because you're an adult. Because if you were a kid, this would work. And then I wasn't quite sure what to do next. So I said, ask your three-year-old self what the problem is. And then he, he says, the only thing I heard was mother. Actually, later he told me he heard mommy, but he changed it to mother because he's 29 years old. And I said, oh, your mom must not have been around when you had the stitches. Maybe she was in the back of the room. Maybe she was outside of the room. Um, you were traumatized because you're separated from mom. I get that. So I took out a book called The Invisible String. Are you familiar with that book? Which one is it called? The Invisible String. Huh, I know not. It's an illustrated book I use with typically with six to eight year olds who have separation anxiety from their mom. And ah. the premise of the book is that we are we're all connected with an invisible string of love. I love that. And if you um, tug on it, the person you love will feel it. And if they tug back, you'll feel their love. And the end of the book is we're not, none of us are ever alone. Mm -hmm. So I read him this storybook. I say, I'm reading this to your three-year-old self. So I read in the storybook that typically be to 68-year-olds. And I finish and I say, so what'd you think of the story? So I liked it, but I, I got emotional in the middle. So, yeah, I'm getting emotional by you talking about it right now. So I said, uh -huh. so look, look up the needle on the internet. He looked it up, could look at needles. I'm fine. He wow. Because That's we amazing. got the three-year-old unstuck. And I, the first guess he was stuck because of the medical trauma. That wasn't it. He was stuck because he missed his mommy. Right. And I do a, a similar thing. So I think I mentioned in our correspondence that I do shamanic journeying. Okay. And it does relate to my storytelling. And if anybody's taking to taking my storytelling classes, it's very similar. It's kind of symbiotic. Right. And it just depends on what people want. Cause I'll do the smoke and mirrors where I have a magic carpet that I got from Peru and it's very elaborate, or I could do something very simple, which I did with my secretary a few weeks ago, where she was suffering this loss for many years of her cousin who had passed away. And um, she was very prominent at the school and they have a bench in her name. And she died of lupus when she was 21. Right. And so she kept coming to me and saying she was having paranormal activity in her home and, and all these um, things were happening. So she sat down and she told me the story of her cousin and how, like people are starting to forget her at this school and that her daughter now attends. And so, um, and, and she told me, she goes, oh, I used to work there, but I had to leave because they weren't paying me enough. And now I work here, you know, as a secretary for a clinic. And so, but she was just so emotionally attached. So I go, well, what is bothering you about this, about your cousin? Um, she goes, it's because I had to work that day when she died and I didn't get to say goodbye. So I took her back you know, and we did a journey and I took her back to the hospital 
And um, she was able to say goodbye and it was very emotional for her. So she just cried and cried and cried. And I brought her back and um, I, and she was like, I feel amazing. She felt like this weight had been lifted off of her, you know? So it could be, if you believe like my friend, Dr. Terry Palmer, that there was a spirit attachment on her. And I, I felt that she left her, you know, it could have been a memory. It could have been a lot of things that she was anchoring in her subconscious. Right. I've also seen this with, again, the men that I date, one in particular, um, and he was the one that I did this major, we did the carpet thing with the, with the fire and stuff, which was super cool and fun. And I could see, because I kept seeing children around him, and these were all his child selves, and there were a lot of them, and I was just like, oh my God, you know, <laughs> so um there was one in particular I go oh, okay um I invite you to tell me your story I see a four-year-old you know that keeps wanting to come out and tell me a story I invite that child to come and tell me the story and he just started crying and that child came out and told me how he had been bullied badly as a child so I took him back there and I had him confront the bullies um he, he and I use the David and Goliath scenario. I go, you are David, they are Goliath, you know who wins, you know, and just beat up the bully. He could not do it, could not do it. He was negotiating with the bully. So he had so many, he, he owned his own business and he had so many problems in his own business and people around him would bully him all the time. You know, so uh, a year later we had broken up and a year later he comes back to me and it was a very back to the future scenario, which is a great movie. Um, and I had watched this scene in back of the future where uh, Marty McFly goes back and sees George McFly, his dad, before he's going to get beat up by Biff and he's writing a book. And this guy had written a book too, which was hilarious. And he had issues like there was some stuff going on with his son too. It was very, very interesting. So he calls me up one day and I had just watched that clip and he, I, I get a call from him and he goes, do you remember the back to the future and the bullies? And I go, yes. And I told him, I go, it's interesting. I just watched that clip. And he goes, I go, you couldn't beat up the bully. And he goes, I couldn't, <laughs> he still can't. And I go, and I told him, I go, just go back in your mind and do it. Said, we'll get back to it. I can't. And I go, I can't help you. <laughs> so so I first, I, I, would, I would throw at him what Henry Ford said 100 years ago. He said, whether you think you can or think you can't, you are right. Whether you think you can or think you can't, you are right. And if he was in therapy with me, I would. Um, really work with his subconscious, find out if the subconscious feels good about himself or herself. The subconscious sometimes is opposite gender. Um, and if the subconscious felt good about uh, itself, <laughs> then um, I would help the subconscious strengthen this guy up. If the subconscious yeah. is having trouble, um, I would want to explore why. Um, maybe there could be a past life story there or yeah, something. There was, there was a past life story where he was a oh. um, centurion. Okay. Right. And so, um, but then I ended up finding out, this is very, he's a very interesting case um, that he had multiple personalities. He had dissociative identity disorder. And I named, he was creating these altars because he had been bullied, mm -hmm. you know, 
uh, and, and one of the alters had taken over. I mean, I'm writing a screenplay about it. It's all very interesting. I had talked about it with him and we had discussed what was going on for a long time because I had seen three in particular that were controlling him. And one was um, this main character that was like the business guy. He was kind of like a madman from the show Mad Men. Um, then there was the true self, which I really had connected with you know, immensely. It was, it was incredible. And then there was the Gollum, which I think you can associate with, who was a Frankenstein. And I saw him turn into Frankenstein one night. I was, I was like, he literally was doing the moves, wore different shoes. I was like, this is wild. You know, he could still speak to me, but like Frankenstein, you know? And, and I just was like, so I would tell him, because I studied um, Carl Jung, and I came up with this idea, and I said, your main character, I won't say the name, you have to cut, and he, he started to really paint, and he had always been an artist, and he'd really get into his paintings and stuff. I go, you need to do a painting of yourself with a head on a silver platter, and that's yourself. You have to decapitate this character you know, and Carl Jung says, so it's basically you, um, I forget the, the meaning of it. I have it all mapped out somewhere. It, it's the Medusa. So you are incorporating that soul back so he can get back into wholeness. And he was like, I love that idea. That's so cool. And I go, I go, yeah, whenever you're ready, <laughs> so, like, you know, and we connect every once in a while and stuff like that. But it, it is all very, very interesting. And it is part of my screenplay. Um, but it, it goes back to and one of my favorite paintings is the John the Baptist, if you if you know it on the silver platter with the head on the silver platter. And there's also the Salone, Salome, I think it's called, with the head on the silver platter. So I became obsessed with all these beheading paintings, which are very, very fascinating. If you start studying them, you start going down rabbit holes with all these things. Um, and it's interesting where they lead you. But yeah, he was my first, first um, one that I really started to look at. And then I started to look at dissociations. But what I find is these men have psychic children who I am communicating with. And they're like, help my dad because he is a mess and it's very, and that, and I'm like, Oh, I guess I'm the advocate. That's who I am. And so I am, I get these messages and I relay them back and it's right on and they'll go back to their, and it does like with, with my first case um, with the multiple personalities, his relationship got much better with his son, you know, much better. Um, and, and once he became aware, and now I'm working with another one, which is a similar situation, but a little bit different, you know? Um, so, but it is very fascinating how that all comes together, <laughs> but pretty wild. Going back to your secretary, um, I would have, when I do a version of what you did, rather than going back to the past, I teach them how to do hypnosis. Um, and then I suggest they invite their loved one to meet with them in, in the present and have an interaction. And I've found that um, that is uh, healing in the majority of patients and also that they believe it's real. And then, yes. they, can, and then they can use that. They can keep talking to loved ones the rest of their life if they so choose. So it's not something buried in the past that becomes very present 
and future oriented. So I encourage you to right. check it out. Yeah, I, I've, I've done that with other um, other friends, you know, um, as well. It's just, it's, it, it's intuitive. It's like whatever sure. needs to be done. Like with her, she kept saying she needed to go back there. So in her subconscious, she was kind of stuck. She, she felt bad that she was working and didn't make the time to go back there, you know? Um, and, and then there was a, a weird thing with that, sh- that this cousin had gotten cremated and then the ashes were kept outside. It was weird. So it, it was a very interesting story. I mean, these are all things I'm writing about because they're very fascinating. I've worked with several of my friends um, and it's just because um, and they'll come to me and they'll be like, OK, I need to. And then sometimes I do it with them. And so they'll give me information that I need for my life. You know, I mean, my um I found a mechanic intuitively one day. I was like, oh, I need a German mechanic to work on my BMW. And there he was right across the street from my house working on a Mercedes, came and changed a battery for me, you know, but then there were certain things, but then he was giving me tips, you know, I I'd like, hey, da, da, da. and he'd be like, oh, you need that. Da, da, da. I was like, oh, wow, he looks great. You know, so, <laughs> he's a great mentor that came into my life. One thing I want to talk about um, briefly is when kids are in abusive relationships with their parents, okay? Um, and and, and um, I'm going to go over this because I'm studying the vagal nerve. I had this patient one day, she was two years old, she came in and she had Bell's palsy, which is, is strange in a two-year-old, right? And so I asked the little girl, ¿Qué pasó? She spoke Spanish and she goes, me pegó una niña. And I was like, Oh, and I was like, and so she's telling me, and the mom cuts her off and says, well, this is what happened. She has Bell's palsy. We went to the ER, but two months ago, she never plays with other children. Um, You know, she was playing with this other child. She took away a toy. The other child slapped her in the face and the child, the little girl, my patient, the two-year-old never forgot it. Okay. Uh, And she kept complaining about it. And she kept talking to her mom. She was traumatized, you know? And so all of a sudden she got Bell's palsy on that side where the little girl slapped her. And I was like, isn't this fascinating? You know, I was talking to another nurse practitioner. She tells me the same story. She's like, well, I had a patient who was in a, um, the parents were always arguing. They were about to get a divorce. And then she kept seeing the patient over and over again. And all of a sudden the kid came in with Bell's palsy. She goes, I swear that kid's Bell's palsy was caused by stress from the parents. And I go, yes, studying the vagal nerve, that um, trauma gets stuck, you know, and and you do a lot with breathing as well. I mean, I have another um, friend who called me and was talking about her daughter. Um, Her her ex-husband was very um, abusive, uh, how can I say, um, gaslighting, narcissistic. So she noticed these same traits in her teenage daughter. I believe she's 15 years old. Okay. And she, um, said that she's always been a liar ever since she was a kid and then, uh, is always gaslighting the mom. And I, and I told her, I don't think she's, I go, it seems like she's suffering from PTSD. And like I read in your book too, these lies, that's, she's trying to protect herself, right? It's kind of like a protection mechanism. So you're asking me what to do in situations where the parents are the bigger issue than the kid, perhaps. Right. Is that the question? 
Well, that's really, really tough. Uh, sometimes the parents are um, uh, amenable to suggestions. Um, so fortunately, more often than not, in a situation like this, the parent might be abusive, but they're, they don't realize they're abusive or that's right. the only way they know how to raise the kid. And when they're given guidance of how to communicate, let's say with a teenager in a healthier way, they, they jump at it. Um, I talked to I talk to parents about uh, three things when dealing with teenagers. One is to listen to them, yes. really listen. You know, don't cut them off. And if the teenager doesn't make sense, don't tell them it doesn't make sense. Work within their world. And I tell teenagers, same thing. Listen to your parents. Don't cut them off and try to do your best to understand what the parent is, is working on. Then I tell the parents, second rule is um, respect your child. You say, why does the kid respect me? Well, you need to respect your child, especially again, a teenager. Um, they have their own ideas. Uh, sometimes they have to do things the wrong way to learn how to do things, and that's okay. I, I tell parents about how um, when a toddler learns to walk, they fall, they get up, they fall, they get up, they fall, they get up, and finally they get it. I say it's the same process in teenagers. They, it's just a different entity. They're going to mess up, get up, mess up, get up. Just be patient. Don't assume they're going to be horrible and all that stuff. And the third thing I tell them is um, don't argue about what happened in the past. I go into this thing about memories imperfect, which it is. We don't really remember how things happen. We remember how our brain allows us to remember. Right. And so you can both see the same event and have different memories. Doesn't mean anybody's lying. Um, so, you know, so many families, you said this. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. And you spent hours talking about it. You lie. You lie. Let it go. So if you disagree, say we disagree or different memories, let's talk about how to do it in the future. So those three rules, uh, the majority of parents and teens get it and things improve a great deal. It's kind of, it's fun to see. It's really healing for the families. Then you run into parents who are really pathologic. Yes. Um, who are unable to see their pathology, be it the narcissistic parent who just thinks everything about him or herself and just the kid is just a tool in their, in their toolkit. Um, I have one parent who tells me, well, I want to make sure my kid um, is somebody I could have married. What? Yeah, because I never found the right partner because they weren't raised right. So I want to make sure my kid is like that. And like um, she hyper-programs a kid who is just yeah. starting to rebel appropriately so and doesn't understand why he's not following her directions. And when, when I, I try to call on it, she just, she, you don't know what you're talking about, okay? I can't help that kind of situation. I remember one child I saw who had headaches, chest pain, and stomach aches. And he had he'd been seen in five medical center. I was a sixth medical center. No one could find anything medically wrong. The last medical center, no idea of hypnosis sent to me. So I tell the parents, well, I recognize those symptoms. I see them all the time. These are stress symptoms. Let me teach him hypnosis. Let's see how much better he gets. If he gets better, great. If he doesn't get better, um, we could do more tests or something. Right. The parents said, we're both college professors. We believe in the mind-body connection, but we're not going to let you teach our child hypnosis. And walked out. I wanted to tell, call Child Protective, but they wouldn't do anything with it. It was just sad because clearly these parents have a big problem. You can hypothesize why. Maybe they have a bad marriage and the kid's symptoms focuses them, them on the kid as opposed to on themselves or 
maybe, you know, this could be like a Munchausen by proxy kind of situation. Yes. You need the kid to be sick, but I can't help that. And, and, and it's frustrating because the kids are suffering. Yeah. Um, but if they have a malignant parent, you know, that's where I say my job is to do the best I can and to offer possible solutions, but I can't help everyone. Do you have a better solution? Have you found what to do with such parents? Um, it's really difficult, you know, and, um, I follow your lead. I mean, sometimes I can do so much, but I find that, um, I, I try and, and some actually come back later and then when they're ready, you know, I, I had a, a patient, um, who didn't like me, you know, and I, I saw her child when he was one. And I said, I, I think something's going on. He doesn't have eye contact. He's autistic, you know? Um, and, um, she was like, well, I want to talk to the doctor. I don't want to talk to you. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. I go, well, you're free to come see one of the doctors. I, I mean, it's up to you. Well, guess who she comes and sees all the time now <laughs> because we talk about, and now we have a great relationship. I mean, she really can confide in me and she tells me certain things. Cause she knows she goes, she, and every time I see, um, my patient, like I saw him today, he get like, now he has eye contact you know, and it's, she, and he's so much better than when I first saw him and I see him in little spurts and little by little, he is coming back. His, it's almost like he had a soul loss somehow. And she, and we were talking about birth trauma today and, and she feels that it happened there, you know, and, and yeah. And so his soul is stuck somewhere. So we're slowly bringing, and I could see he's coming back slowly and slowly, you know, and, and, her um, partner was very reluctant to have him tested for autism. And um, I, I sent her to the, to the regional center probably three or four times already. And she's refusing to call. And, I, and today we really talked about it. I go, listen, because she's afraid of the diagnosis. I go, he, couldn't, he may not have autism, but at least we know and we could get him the proper treatment and, and you know, occupational therapy or whatever he needs. He's in speech therapy now that I sent him. And, um, and, and he can slowly start working on that. I go, they will give him the proper tools. So we're not looking at a life sentence, but we're looking at help for him so that he can function in the world, you know? So on the phone, her partner was like, yes, okay, now we're going to go where, you know, so it's, it's amazing to see this progression, you know, although it's very slow, but I understand it. So I, I just follow where they're at you know? And, and so that's what I've seen. So this is like one of the patients that has come back. There's been other ones who then are like, remember when you, you know, now I'm ready, you know, and, and everybody has their time. So, you know, and maybe some people aren't meant to be, you know, I, I was told by Mary's many spiritual practitioners, not everybody's meant to be healed in this life. Right. <laughs> you know, right. We do our best. All right. So where can people find you, um, Dr. Anbar? So uh, you can look to dranbar.com, D-R-A-N as in Nancy, B as in boy, A-R.com. Uh, there's a lot of information about hypnosis there. Um, I'm in La Jolla, California. So if you have a child who needs, who could benefit from hypnosis, um, look me up. I will tell you that I believe any child with chronic symptoms could benefit from hypnosis, either their psychology is involved because they have a chronic symptoms, because let's say if they have breathing problems, they might get anxious. Or if they have stomach aches, they might get depressed. Or their psychological problem causes their symptoms. 
And then if you deal with the psychology symptoms, it's go away. And Western medicine does a very poor job in identifying the psychological yeah. underpinnings of physical symptoms. So, and this is why alternative medicines help, but I tell you, hypnosis in my mind is the most efficient way of addressing the psychology of a child or a person. It doesn't take very long, two, three sessions. And as I told you before, two thirds of my medical patients improve dramatically just with that, just learning how to relax. Yes, I especially like the work that you were doing with kids who have seizures and uh, kids who had the chronic asthma, you know, and, and um, learning how to regulate their brain. That one child uh, where he had um, a broken brain where he was getting uh, fevers all the time. He had a lot of brain damage. And but you told him, turn on the air conditioner. Right. Yep. yep. And then he had no fevers. So that, that, that's chapter eight of my book, Changing Children's Lives with Hypnosis. Yes. Order on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Yeah, I'm going to put a link on the show thank notes, you. but thank you so much, Dr. Amherst. This has been I super really fun. I want to have you on again. Maybe we'll meet. I, I, maybe we've already done it already. But yeah. <laughs> True in the future. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to our Nurses and Hypochondriacs podcast. We love your support and we love our listeners. If you have some spare change, go ahead and throw some to us on our Venmo at Nurses and Hypocon. Also, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love that. And if you'd like to be a guest, go ahead and send us an email at nursesandhypochondriacs at gmail.com. <laughs>